Voice of America, Washington, D.C., signing on. to another episode of Radio Contra, the podcast of AmericanPartisan.org and hosted by me, NC Scout, coming at you live from here in the Gorilla Camp, located deep in the heart of rural northern North Carolina. And um, rolling into some really fun stuff, man. Uh, still got Kay here of Combat Studies Group. If you haven't checked out the podcast that we've done together, you definitely need to go uh, get on that. Fix that deficiency. A lot of great knowledge. A lot of great learning is happening here. And, of course, the house is packed uh, with great patriots, great folks. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's just a magical time all around. Uh so, breaking down some things here, wanted to get a podcast kicked out where we were going to break down some, some very informative stuff, uh, throw a little bit of knowledge out there at you. You know, we've deep dove into the political stuff, we've, we've covered a lot of ground in recent episodes, and we've kind of jumped around on a lot of different topics, and I uh, had a heck of a great time doing it. And one of the things that we've done in the last few episodes that's really generated a lot of buzz has been the, the listener questions and the reader questions being sent in. And I think that, that that spurns a lot of very useful conversation that we can have. And uh, there's a lot of utility and, and something that I've learned in going on eight years of being a, a trainer and a teacher and, and, you know, working with all of you out there uh, in person, in, in, in person classes. And that is if one of you is thinking a question and one of you has a question to ask, generally speaking, somebody else has that exact same question. Um, and, and, you know, maybe is a little too afraid to ask it or, or whatever. And so um, that's why I love fielding those questions. I love fielding your, your uh, what you want to know and uh, kind of getting, getting that out the door. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it's just a great opportunity all around to share knowledge. And I think that that, uh, that rising tide, um, you know, floats all ships. But uh, with that said, you know, I do get a lot of emails from folks out there uh, who are just starting out in the path of, of preparedness, who are just starting out you know, on uh, things like individual sovereignty and becoming more uh, politically aware. Um, you know, and, and so I'm, I'm really honored by 
the the number of people that I get in class and get to interact with who are just coming to this, uh, who, who are, who, you know, this, this kind of seems like to me that, that in, in some ways that uh, this my, the podcast or coming to class or reading, uh, you know, the Gorilla's Guide to Balfang Radio, the Gorilla Dispatch Volume 1 and, and 2, and, you know, what has brought us uh, or has brought you to us uh, and, and really serves as a gateway for a lot of folks out there. And I'm very, very honored by that uh, because I know uh, with our forebears, um, you know, James Wesley Rawls, for example, is, is kind of uh, really brought me into the this deep, much deeper into this genre than I had previously been, uh, you know, because where I live culturally, uh, prepping is just it's, it's not something that that we uh, it's not something that we really consciously think about or label ourselves or whatever. It's just something that you do uh, that, you know, every every country folk. You know, we, we exist in, in doing these things, right? Uh, but anyway, you know, where James Wesley Rawls served as a, as a big impetus for me to kind of rethink some things and reinforce some things that I had grown up with. And uh, that opportunity uh, that I see that a lot of people, that, that feedback that they give me uh, is it's very, very deeply honoring uh, on a level that... Um, I'm not sure many of you out there can can uh, I, I don't necessarily think that I can truly convey how, how appreciative I am by that and uh, how honored I am by that. But even still, uh, so I get a lot of questions, a lot of questions, a lot of uh, new questions of, of folks that, that are just coming to this stuff. And even, you know, a, a lot of guys with a mountain of experience, maybe in other areas, other areas of preparedness, maybe firearms training, what have you. But there's new there's new concepts uh, that, you know, that we're breaking ground on. There's new things. And, uh, you know, one of which is is around weapons. And, you know, we we kind of have that conversation about personal defense, personal defense weapons and a lot of this stuff goes uh, cyclical throughout the decades. Um, trends and, and what have you in, in uh, firearms, personal defense world, especially, you know, what what's new is, is, you know, or what's old rather is new again in a lot of cases. And, um, you know, it, it's, there's just some interesting things. I mean, uh, you know, when, when you see people uh, with weapons like, for example, the uh, the Sig 365 or the Springfield Hellcat or the Glock 48, for example, uh, single stack subcompact pistols. You know these these are really uh, parlor guns. Uh, what people used to call parlor pistols that would be uh, chambered in 25 or 32 ACP. Um, that were uh, sometimes you'd hear them derogatorily referred to Saturday night specials. I mean, even even my grandparents' generation, you know, this this was a very very common phrase. After that, you know, Saturday night special was a, a very cheap handgun that was easily concealed uh, and normally was associated with with some sort of illicit activity. Um, you know, and and it, it's that aside. That aside, uh, we're seeing these weapons again. You know, we kind of got away from the parlor pistol idea for a long time, and now kind of the, the need for deep concealment, uh, 
is coming back. I mean, I remember when when Glock 19s were the gold standard for for concealed weapons, and now that's kind of looked at as as being a little large. Um, you know, I carry a Glock 19 primarily, uh, but um, you know, anyway, it's just fascinating. Uh, it's fascinating. It's personal observation. It's fascinating. And one of those debates is kind of revolving around pistol caliber carbines versus full caliber weapons, uh, fighting fighting rifles. Um, and, and there's certainly a case to be made there. Uh, so, you know, without further ado, I've got an a, uh, email here from a student and a client of mine who's asking exactly that because these are becoming more and more popular out there once more, right? Once more, the pistol caliber carbine. And so uh, here we go. Thanks for your work out in East Tennessee. Helped me knock off a lot of rust. Uh, so, you know, in class, uh, last class in Tennessee, we had a heck of a good time. Uh, this person in particular was a combo guy uh, back in the day. In, in the army. And so, um, you know, dusting off some of that old school knowledge, we had a, a very uh, humorous conversation about CEOIs and communications planning before class. And uh, it was really a lot of fun to uh, see those old uh, uh, synapses firing like, oh, wait, I remember this. And you, know, you, you get all sorts of uh, fun interaction from, from the students. And I, I really, it's an experience I, I just truly, truly love. But uh, anyhow, carrying on with this email here. In your weekly, could you opine on a sub-2009 millimeter uh, Caltech uh, in particular, so sub-2000, as a defensive weapon? And in particular, considering short-range accuracy, uh, weight, weapon-slash-ammo considerations, uh, battlefield ammo pickup. This is a good one. This this is a good one, and I'm gonna I'm gonna dispel some myths here, and I'm gonna dive kind of deep into this this topic of the the quote unquote battlefield pickup. Uh no military experience and or older folks. Uh, always always a consideration. Uh, always a consideration. And uh, anyhow, is uh, going on and, and thanking at the end. Uh, cutter five is a call sign. <clears throat> All right. So right off the bat, you know, you, you probably have an interest in the, uh, Caltech sub 2000. That's why you're, you're mentioning it specifically. It's a fascinating little weapon. Uh, I think it weighs in right at six pounds. Um, it, it might even be a little bit lighter than that. Um, I, I was familiar with one of these many, many, many years ago. Uh, many, it's probably probably about thirteen years ago now. Was the last time I fired one of these. Uh, was at Fort Bragg. Somebody had one. They they bought one at the uh, uh, Fayetteville Gun Show at uh, the the Crown. And um, you know, it was, it was just something fun that was you know we were playing around with. Uh, at the time, I really didn't think it was the most useful thing in the world because, you know, my thinking centered around uh, fighting handgun, which, you know, Glock 19 dominates that space. There were guys that, that had bought 
their own M92s to, you know, run those and, and get pro very proficient with them. Uh, the 1911, of course, is always it, that. That's you know, I've got a, a few 1911s that I picked up in that era and still have. Um, you know, competitive handguns, CZ, of course, uh, Sig, the Sig 226 was was uh, very very common back then. But um, you know, the, the sub 2000, right? So I, I didn't really. You, you had your handguns. You had your fighting carbines which I looked at as, you know, M4 and AK as, as being the two heavy hitters in that category. And, you know, and then, you, of course, you have precision marksmanship weapons, which uh, Remington 700, uh, SR-25 platform, so on and so forth. Um, so I really kind of didn't, didn't think about too much about it, uh, the, the sub-2000. I just didn't really think a whole lot about that firearm. Uh, it just was. It, it was something fun to shoot. It was cheap. It was nine millimeter. Uh, took Glock mags, so that's nice. But I just didn't really think a whole lot about it. Um, years later, so years later, and and of course I'd shot submachine guns, MP5s. Um, you know, the CZ Scorpion is is another one, and you know, getting familiarized on, on these weapons. But I still just didn't really uh, embrace the idea of pistol galloper carbines because, you know, I look at handgun rounds, looked at handgun rounds, at least at that time, as a means to fight to a way to a rifle. Um, I still don't necessarily disagree with that. Uh, my thinking hasn't completely changed, but there are certain roles for a pistol caliber carbine that I think are certainly applicable. Uh, certainly very applicable. And and the sub-2000, for the reasons that I just mentioned, you know, ammo availability, you know, 9mm is not going anywhere. 9 by 19 is not ever going anywhere. That round is always going to be around. Um, the fact that it takes Glock mags, you know, the, the Glock 17 family, so Glock 17, Glock 19, Glock 34, um, these, these mags are not going anywhere. Uh, Magpul produces them, and, you know, you can say what you want. The quality of some of those that I've used, I don't have too terribly many of them. I run the original Glock mags that are lined with metal. But, um, you know, I don't think they're too bad, but other people's results vary a bit. Oh, there's some say that they're a little sticky in, in the Magwell and what have you. But the point is, though, is that there's a mountain of things that uh, logistically that, that follow the Glock, and, and it's not going anywhere. So this was a smart move on uh, Keltec's part in designing the weapon. And uh, it's a it's a break action weapon. It folds, um, which is kind of interesting. Keltec is kind of known for these little uh, weird niche type products uh, that are really unique. Uh, that, are, that are really unique, for good and bad, uh, for good and bad. And when I say that it's bad, what I mean specifically is is that they, they're unique, they're proprietary designs, and uh, nobody's doing what Keltec's doing. <clears throat> so, you know, they might make spare parts a little hard to find in some of their other models. But I know the the uh, Sub-2000, uh, sub rather, Stumbling over my words a little bit is has been around a long, long time, and I've never heard of one breaking. I'm sure it's happened, uh, but I I personally have never really heard of it. Then again, of course, I haven't really looked too deep 
to find it either. Uh, so, um, <clears throat> anyhow, with that said, uh, pistol caliber carbines, I'll explain or I'll extend this to my explanation of this to, to other uh, platforms as well. You know, the CZ Scorpion, which I always uh, also mentioned. Um, I've had one of those for a number of years, and I really, really like it. Uh, I think that it's it's a uh, high quality weapon as everything that comes from CZ is, and it's very very practical. The the uh, optics mounting systems on it are very practical. The controls are ambidextrous. Uh, it has a similar manual of arms to an MP5, um, so very easy, very intuitive to use, and you know it, it's it's a good little weapon, very good little weapon, extremely reliable weapon as well. Um, you know, I, I, again, the, uh, CZ Scorpion, I, they've been running those pretty hard in the Horn of Africa and in the Middle East. And, um, it's, it's a submachine gun that these days you don't really hear a whole lot about, uh, in the gun press, but they, they've been around in, in the personal security spaces and, uh, some of these very, very, um, uh, highly conflicted areas around the world they've uh they've really proven themselves so you know it, it's it's a weapon that's certainly worth looking at and of course the mp5 you know the mp5 is making a big comeback there's uh patriot ordnance factory not not the one that makes ars but one in pakistan uh that is making uh, MP5s as well, clone of them. I think they're called the Zenith or something like that. Uh, Century Arms is importing a, a Turkish MP5 clone, which uh, seems to be getting a lot of nice reviews online. Um, you know, I haven't shot one yet, so I, I can't really say. Uh, and, you know, HK is even offering, you know, their, their originals uh, of the MP5. And, of course, then you, you've got uh, uh, B&T, has uh, you know their their pistol caliber carbine out. There's some others that are on the very low end of the budget, like High Point, uh, which I personally would stay away from because <clears throat> you don't know what they're made out of. Uh, I, I have some very serious questions uh, regarding the the actual uh, metallurgy content of, of what High Point is putting out. Um, so anyway, that's but that's another conversation. Getting that to your your. Uh, Comments here, though, is the viability of, of a pistol caliber carbine as a defensive weapon. So, bottom line up front, uh, absolutely. You know, if, if there, there are some some very strong merits here. Uh, now, is it something that will be my first choice in a gunfight? No. Uh, no. No. And, you know, the reason for that is, is that I can... I feel like, uh, you know, if I'm, if, if, if I, the situation necessitates that I'm having to carry a long arm, uh, that can be better accomplished through other means. Right? And the AK is one of them. Uh, an AK in a shorter barrel is a far more, far and away more lethal package. Um, you do have more weight, you do have more recoil and I, you know, I get all that. Uh, but that's what I would be carrying. Um, <clears throat> You know, and then of course, if if that is is warranted, uh, you know, running an M4, obviously, for the you know, I'm expecting to go into an environment where I need to utilize the uh, longer 
range. You know, M M4 is really beginning to shine. But uh, pistol caliber carbines. So, you know, they absolutely do have a role. And uh, short range accuracy, you know, within 100 meters. Uh, something out of a four and a half inch barrel, uh, like for example, the, the, uh, one of the compact models of an MP5. Yeah. You're talking about a four and a half inch barrel. Your lethality at a hundred meters is, is low. Okay. It, it's, that's just reality. It's physics. Um, when you begin to extend that barrel though, so Let's say, uh, you know, a 16-inch barrel of the Sub-2000, the one that's in question. You're actually gaining quite a bit of energy. And, you know, at 100 meters, it's it's more effective, okay, than it would be in, in some uh, compact, short-barreled variant, right? So that's definitely something to think about. Um, you know, weight considerations kind of already covered that, Um you know, the sub 2000 being a five pound, right in the six pound range, uh, you know, yeah, it's lightweight. And so if you have physical limitations or you have people who are of smaller stature or what have you, um, dad, you know, again, they can carry ammo. They could, they, they can still be armed. That's, you know, so, uh, yeah, there is some validity there. And uh, there's a lot of lessons. If you go back and look at some of the trials of personal defense weapons in the 1950s, this concept of, of the PDW was really in its, its uh, genesis there. Uh, and even prior to that, I mean, the Germans were doing stuff with the Schmeisser, um, you know, which begat the MP40. The Soviets were, were working on theirs with the PPSH, you know, and, and we had the, uh, the Thompson and then later the, the M3 grease gun which was designed to fill that role, but superseded by the, the M1 and M2 carbines. And so look into what some of those limitations were. Look into to what uh, its effectiveness was and then, you know, what its shortcomings were going to be. And, and that's kind of the, the uh, that's your, your ideological framework for running one of these weapons. Uh, and, and that's going to answer a lot of your questions. Um, <clears throat> let's talk about battlefield pickups. So since that was part of the question here, the, the battlefield ammunition pickup, quote unquote. Uh, this is one of those things that, that I think a lot of people overblow this. They overblow this concept. Um, you're not necessarily picking up ammunition, quote unquote, on the battlefield. Alright, with a few very rare circumstances that, you know, alright, so like you're doing SSE, sensitive site exploitation on people, okay, um, but the reality is that's, that's very, very rare, uh, very rare, are you going to be, you know, searching someone after the fact, it's more, the, the, the whole idea of like a battlefield ammo pickup is more, the consideration and reflection of working with underground elements. So say like for the, for the sake of argument, you know, we're, we're living in, in the bad times where America is, you know, went completely sideways. And like, let's say th th there's always going to be some governmental structure that exists. All right. Now it's effectiveness 
is is another story. <clears throat> Can it effectively govern? But even even in a, a place like Somalia, right, which would uh, be very well qualified to say that it's is pure anarchy, right? They do have a government. It's not an effective one. They are a failed state, but they do have a government. Uh, look at Mexico. You know, Mexico is is very much, especially northern half of Mexico, is a, is a narco state. Uh, where those are the, the the fiefdoms of power, but they do have a central government. Its effectiveness is limited. Um, it does not effectively govern through force, uh, but it still has a government. And the United States is going to be that as well, uh, as its role in, on the world stage diminishes and, and what have you. But, uh, so all of that aside, uh, let's say that we live in, in a society where, you know, ammunition, the availability of ammunition has been banned, right? Which is certainly is the case in a lot of parts of the world. You, you, you know, you still need access to ammunition. Uh, and nine millimeter is always going to be there. It's always going to be plentiful. It's, it can always be sourced. Uh, a lot of law enforcement agencies are going back to nine millimeter. Uh, there was a, a period in, in the 2000s where 40 Smith & Wesson was the, the uh, primary law enforcement caliber, and that's going uh, by the wayside and quickly uh, because, uh, you know, 9mm is, is very effective, and the modern incarnations of 9mm, the modern defensive loadings in 9mm are, you know, it, it's a great round. Uh, it is a great round. You know, full metal jacket leaves so much to be desired, but that's, you know, it, for a lot of guys with coming from the dot mill side of things, myself included, for a lot of time or, or a lot of uh, a period of time in, in the 2000s, we uh, kind of wrote off 9mm based on our experience with full metal jacket ammo. Um, you know, kind of looked at it as anemic and whatever. But when, when you look at modern defensive loadings, like actual effective ammo, you see that it works pretty doggone well. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, something to something to glean there. Uh, but nine millimeter is always going to be around. Defensive loading is always going to be around. And I would say that in in uh, twenty twenty three, it's probably more proliferated in the United States than it ever has been in the past. And that's really saying something. And and I don't see that trend changing anytime soon. I don't see us going back to uh, 45 ACP anytime soon in, in a massive way. It's always going to be around. It's, it's never going to go away. It's just like 30-30. But, it, you know, 9 millimeter is, is really the, the standard across the board. Um, how you source that ammo from underground elements is really the, the more important question. It, it's not battlefield pickup. You know, you're not you're not stripping rounds off of guys like I did in Call of Duty or anything like that. It's a matter of, you know, hey, I can source this from my contact who is is running the black market or has contacts and you know in the underworld, and I get that nine millimeter that was earmarked for law enforcement, but I got the ammunition. And uh, a lot of how it works, if, if you go back and look at the uh, watch, the Battle of Algiers, you're going to see this. You're going to see a lot of this, uh, how they procured weapons, how they, they weapons were moved around, the weapons themselves, 
and ammunition were moved around in an underground sense in uh, uh, Algeria during the Algerian uh, Civil War against the French. Uh, so, you know, the, the Algerian uh, communist insurgency. And, and so it's very, very good vignette on guerrilla warfare in general, but how this functions. Uh, speaking of that, Che Guevara is, is another person who, uh, if you read guerrilla warfare, he talks about the, the utility of, of uh, pistol caliber uh, weapons and giving them to your support troops. Uh, people who who are new to the guerrilla column, who uh, you know, it's it, they haven't been guerrilla fighters necessarily very long. They may not be very competent, and you give them pistol caliber weapons uh, so that they can carry a lot of ammo, and they, you know, they they are armed, but they're not necessarily utilizing precision fire weapons. Okay, now with that said, uh, with that said. The, the entire, you know, premise there. Do I think that, that these weapons are, are effective uh, and that you should maybe have one or two of them in, in a battery? Yeah, of course. Um, they, they do have merit. But again, I don't think that that supersedes other carbines that may be more effective uh, in legitimate rifle calibers. So you have to understand that that 556 and 762 by 39 both came out of this idea of of taking a a personal defense weapon and needing more ass behind the caliber um, for something that could be used in a primary combat role. So the the AKM, uh, the AK47 first, but then the AKM was certainly reflective of this. Of course, the S, uh, uh, SKS prior to that. But the AK was really the one that, uh, that, that brought that. The Russians, by the way, uh, in, in their old, in the old Soviet training manuals, refer to the AK as a submachine gun. They don't refer to that as a rifle. Uh, the, a rifle is the Mosin Nagant or the SVD. Those, those are rifles. Um, not the AK. The Kalashnikov is is a submachine gun in in the way that that they conceptualized it, uh, at least originally and and through the 1980s. Um, you know, we uh, with the M16 and the uh, M177, the Colt Commando, uh, the the 623, and then uh, the the uh, 729. After that, the, these were carbines that were. Um, you know, the original Colt Commando, 11 and a half inch barrel, they, they took the, the M16 and cut it down so that there would be a, a personal defense weapon. And of course, we know uh, in the decades since the, that these design implementations in several ways would become the M4. So, you know, the way that I look at it is, is that either the M4 or the AK, you can't go wrong. Um, if you're, you know, you're able-bodied enough to, to carry one of the, and, and, you know, the M4, we're not talking about a weapon that recoils very much here. Um, I think that there may be some, some element to your question here that's like, well, you know, the train-up time to train individuals on, on an M4 might be, or, or an AR-15 might be a little bit longer, right, to get them proficient. And the manual of arms of something like a Keltec Sub-2000 is substantially simpler. 
this is true. Uh, this is true. You're not going to get any argument out of me. Um, making someone proficient in that weapon uh, for, for, you know, a short amount of time to where they're confident with it, uh, that they can stake their life on it and you can stake your life on their ability to run that weapon as well. That, that's the way that you need to think about it. Um, so, you know, that being said, everybody in your household, everybody in your mag, community, defense group, team, what, whatever you want to call it, they all need to be proficient in every weapon that's in your battery. Um, that's a fact. They need to, you know, they need to be able to hit things within the operating parameters of that round. Um, with it, they need to be proficient with those weapons. Uh, they need to be proficient with their handguns, you know, sidearms, because they, there, there is going to become a time. I think in the near future, as as conditions, social conditions continue to, to deteriorate, where the primary weapon being used in the the civil conflict that's unfolding is not going to be an AR-15 or you know an AK. Or, or long range type weapons, it's going to be handguns. And there's, there's a lot of evidence, uh, especially in urban conflict. I mean, we see this already, but uh, as, as things are, are going to unfold, I mean, um, you know, if you look at a lot of assassinations throughout history, you know, aside from uh, James Earl Ray with, with uh, uh, Martin Luther King assassination and, and of course the JFK assassination, uh, with, with Lee Harvey Oswald, they were using rifles, but that's relatively rare. You know, most of your, your more infamous assassinations uh, throughout history in the modern era have happened with handguns. And so that's what civil conflict is going to look like. Uh, a lot of the urban conflict happens, you know, with uh, John West's classic um, uh, uh Keep wanting to say War of the Flea. I'm so speaking off the cuff, not War of the Flea. Uh, Fry the Brain. Because uh, I, I constantly go back and, and reference both of those books. Uh, War of the Flea is excellent too, by the way. But uh, Fry the Brain, he talks a lot about you know using a handgun and using handgun calibers as, as an urban sniping platform. And uh, you know this kind of opening up a whole other can of worms. But you know something like a Glock 34. With, with that longer slide, very, very smooth, you put an optic on that. Um, ooh, you, you've got a very interesting package there for, for a lot of purposes. <clears throat> Com still, still a compact weapon, still concealable weapon as far as, you know, uh, that goes. You know, it's, it's a little bit larger than, than a Glock 19. But uh, you've got that extra little bit of slide mass. You've got that extra barrel on the end. Um, and, uh, you know, you throw an optic on that, a, a modern, let's say, a, a red dot. You're going to be very, very accurate within 100 meters. And so, you know, reduced lethality and all that, I get it. Uh, you, you're absolutely right. If you're like, eh, you know, 100 meters, you're, you're losing so much energy out of a, a 9 millimeter. That's true uh, and absolutely true for 45 as well. And then when you're talking about suppressing that weapon system, you're losing yet even more. But if you're able to place that shot in in a critical zone, you know that guy's that guy's going down. Uh, that bad guy's going down. So 
something to think about. Uh, it is, is absolutely something to think about. And you, you start to get into zones that people not necessarily maybe want to uh, have conversations about, you know, and, and that's okay too. Uh, but I would suggest fry the brain um, and uh, that, you know, read read up on, you know, the art of, of urban sniping. Um, and, you know, so to, to circle back to the, the original uh, question here, you know, sub 2000, Good weapon, uh, good weapon, you know, and, and if you got one, hey, I mean, I know, you know, that, that at least online, that thing has a big following behind it. You know, it, it, it's a known quantity. So if you got one, cool. Uh, if you enjoy shooting it, even cooler. Get an optic on it. You know, get an optic on it. See what it can really do. And I think you'd be pretty happy with it. So, uh you know, again, I love having those conversations. I love doing episodes like this one. And uh, the, this next question that I have here is one that uh, I think a lot of you have this question, and maybe you don't necessarily know how to ask it. So we're, we're kind of uh, changing gears here, and we're going to jump into the communications end of stuff. Uh, so we talked a little bit of weapons. Let's talk a little bit about comma. Um. So this this question comes from another student that I had uh, a couple years back. Scout, it's really impressive to see what you've been able to do with the store in just the past few months' time. I truly believe that you are giving the products to to us, the people, at a price that that we can't afford, and it's very good to be able to support a fellow patriot. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you, thank you for that, and uh, you know I, I I appreciate all of the support that uh, the store gets, and and the sheer volume of orders you guys this community really makes it possible. Um, that's a humbling experience for me. It really, really is. Uh, if somebody had told me even a year ago that um, you know this this community would be able to provide what it has for me just in the past twelve months. I, uh, I I would have said no. Nah, there's, there's no way, um, you know. But but indeed it has, and uh, it so the honor is all mine, brother. So thank you. Compare, if you will, for someone who is looking to get into HF uh, in parentheses. I'm about to pick up a general license, and I'm looking at radios within my price point. Awesome. Good, good. You know, more people we can get on HF radio, the better. I really like the features of the Zygu 6100, but I really also like the features of the G90. The G90 seems like this would be a better all-in-one package for someone who's looking to run it as a base unit. I also am fascinated by the Q900. However, I have not seen a lot about it online other than what you've written but I am fascinated about it. Explain, if you will, where each of these fit into the equation and what a person starting out on HF may want each one of these for. Okay, so uh, right off the, the, the top here, um, let's talk about this. So. Getting started in HF, where I would rank each one of these radios 
um, because there are all three of them are, are HF capable, and we know that that uh, HF what we want to use HF for, and why that needs to be part of your arsenal, uh, your your radio arsenal, is centered around uh, that need for for regional communications, and maybe even global. Um, the Zygu 6100 is really great for portability. All three of them are great for portability. But um, that's that's the one, man. You can throw that in a backpack. Uh, and it, it's pretty much a self-contained, one-and-done unit. All right. Uh, so let's talk about these, though, ranking them from what I would buy first if, if I was starting out on HF and kind of going to, uh, you know, maybe basically where I would buy each of these and, and, you know, what your, your considerations ought to be. Um, so the first one that I would buy, and this is what I've told everybody. I tell folks this in class. Uh, if you're getting started in HF and you know, you, you really don't know what you don't know and you're trying to get on the air and you're trying to make those contacts and kind of feel things out. Um, Every HF radio needs a tuner, okay? And what a tuner does is it, it matches the impedance of the the antenna itself because maybe your antenna has is, is got something going on with it. Maybe it's not uh, exactly perfect, exactly resonant to the frequency you're operating on. And, uh, you know, on VHF, UHF, this isn't as bad a problem as it can be on HF. And that has to do really with the, the size of the antennas. Um, you know, if you have, have a huge antenna, uh, you know, HF antennas are, are very, very big. We build these in class uh, during the RTO course. But, um, you know, they, they get big. And they're a little bit harder to tune manually. And they, there's other considerations you got to worry about. Um Really good reference on this, by the way, is the U.S. Special Forces Antenna Handbook. Um, I put that back into print in two versions. There's the top spiral bound version, and there is the large print version, um, which I really prefer. And uh, that one has a camo cover. That's available on brushbeater.store. You can buy it directly from me. It's also available on Amazon.com. Uh, so if you look up the U.S. Special Forces Antenna Handbook, it, it's going to be on there. Really plain English. The concepts are are, are great. Uh, it was written in an era where field manuals were, were really written to be read by anybody. Um, and, and I really like it. I think it's one of the best professional references on antennas that's ever been written. And of course, Antenna Theory. I go into that in the Gorilla's Guide to the Baofeng Radio. Uh, as well as both of the Gorilla Dispatches. There's some great antenna articles that are written in there uh, by myself by Patriot Man, and of course, my very good friend, Historian, who is uh, just a, a absolute wealth of, of radio knowledge, and uh, I've learned so much from him over the years. But uh, anyhow, HF. So HF is a, is a whole other animal. You know, when you're coming from VHF, the UHF world, the uh, technician end of amateur radio, uh, the license-free stuff, um, you know, the, the GMRS, and uh, which I know, I know, I know, that has a license too. Uh, but FRS, MERS, right, all this stuff. Basically using your Baofeng handheld and, and, you know, probably a mobile in your vehicle. 
And, uh, you know, now you're making the jump to AHF. And there's a very steep learning curve. All right. Very, very steep learning curve there. Let's make it a little easy for you. Uh, you got to have an antenna tuner. All right. So this is a, a lot of times an alien concept to guys that are buying uh, ICOM or Yaesu or, or uh, Kenwood radios, some of the, you know, the higher end stuff. Because a lot of times they don't come with tuners. Uh, the 100 watt units, they don't come with tuners. Um, one of the really nice things about the Zygu uh, G90 is it has that built in. It's a small radio already, and it has a tuner built in. You just have to add the power supply. Okay, um, you can run these off of uh, off of uh, sealed lead acid batteries that you can get anywhere. Like Walmart has them, Harbor Freight has them uh, back in their their solar kit section. Uh, in in most WalMarts around here, you're going to be able to find them in uh, the hunting section. When you go back to uh, where the game cameras and stuff are, you're going to be able to find uh, 12 volt sealed lead acid batteries back there. They're going to be a little pricey though. Um, you can get them at, at like Murdoch's if you're out west, uh, Rural King, Tractor Supply for us. They're going to have them with the electric fence material. Uh, so that's where you can source those batteries. And, you know, you, you can rig that thing up. Uh, the G90 puts out 20 watts. All right. So the other radios that, that we're going to be talking about, they're QRP or low power radios. That's what QRP means. And I can tell you getting on HF with low power, if you're new and you don't really understand antenna theory and, you know, you're, you're, you, you really need some, some supervision from people who have done it um, and, and some guidance on that. And sometimes, you know, the, the online, especially in the ham community, the online community and online resources can be kind of limited. Um, it just is what it is. I'm not saying anything bad about anybody in particular or, or, you know, putting down, you know, whatever community. It's just a fact. Um, it's, it's a mixed bag. <clears throat> anyway, with that said, that, that's why we do that in class. Um, but the G90 is very simple radio to operate. Very, very simple radio to operate. Has the tuner built in. Um, all you got to do is add a battery. And you can you can run it off a sealed lead acid battery for a significant amount of time. Uh, you're getting shortwave radio broadcasts with that. So you know, like WWCR, for example, uh, coming out of Nashville, Tennessee, they they carry uh, Alex Jones and, and a lot of other uh, radio shows. <clears throat> you know, you you've you've got that on shortwave, uh, but a lot of other things too. Shortwave radio is is very fascinating. Uh, thing that you know used to be a much bigger deal than it is now, but it's definitely a conduit of information that, that you know you might want to take advantage of. Uh, so the G90 is probably the easiest of all the radios to use right out of the box uh, to get going, and is because it puts out 20 watts and you have a decent enough antenna, you know your results are going to be a little bit better. <clears throat> Uh, being able to put out 20 watts, the full 20 watts, is going to give you quite a bit of signal boost over the air, uh, especially when you're, you're talking about dealing with atmospheric conditions that, that could be changing. And um, that's part of the reason that the, the learning curve on HF is as high as it is. 
Um, you know, but it does take a lot of a lot of time doing it, and and you're going to get frustrated with it sometimes, and and that's okay. Uh, we all have been there, believe me. Uh, but um, the G90 is where I'd start because it is small enough to be portable. It is robust enough to be used in the field. Um, the the build quality behind it's pretty nice. Uh, you know, for what it is, it's a it's inex- a relatively inexpensive way to get into HF and the antenna tuner on this thing uh, to create an electrical match between the uh, antenna and the radio so that the uh, the SWR, the standing wave ratio, won't burn the radio up as you're transmitting. Because if there's an electrical mismatch, a lot of that energy you're putting forth into the antenna is going to come back to the radio. So, um, <clears throat> anyhow, G90 is at the top of the list. If, if you're brand new to HF, you want to get on HF, and you want to do it in, in the least expensive but highest quality way possible, G90 is where it's at. And uh, fortunately, you know, that is the least expensive of the HF radios uh, on my store, on brushbeater.store. And I've got a lot of them in stock right now. Uh, so, you know, hey, yeah, it, it, it's there. It's there for the taking, you know. Um, next on the list, in terms of HF radios, probably the second one I would purchase for HF use, I need to be very specific here, for HF use, is going to be that Zygu 6100. Um, That thing is extremely popular online. Uh, Extremely popular online. That that radio, and I sell a lot of them, um, that is... You know, I'm I'm constantly having to to uh, get new shipments of them and source new shipments from the factory. Uh, we get them direct. Um, great radio, and you know the backpacking radio hobbies, right? Parks on the air or Poda, uh, national parks on the air in Poda, uh, summits on the air, which is is combines two great activities. Uh, you know, getting out, hiking up to, to peaks, things that, you know, hopefully some of y'all are going to be doing anyway and, and carrying a radio up there and uh, seeing what kind of contacts you can make. Th- these are extremely popular hobbies right now within the larger amateur radio community. And that Zygu 6100 is a great way to jump into it. Other really cool things about that radio is is it is the easiest, by far, by far, it is the easiest radio to get into digital operations on. You know, and, and whether that is um, working with uh, FL Digi and FL Message, which, you know, we do in class, uh, in the RTO courses, or it is working with like JS8 call and, and you know, the family of, of uh, digital radio protocols that Joe Taylor came up with, uh, the, the WSJX uh, package suite, which are extremely popular. Uh, I think it, it has very limited utility for a lot of what my concerns are with, you know, using HF in an underground context. Uh, passing coded messages and what have you. I, I think it JSA is very, very limited uh, in that utility. I, d- I don't personally advocate it, and it's because the characters themselves, the way the exchange is handled, it's not, it's not meant for that. Um, it, 
you know, that whole, Joe Taylor, by the way, is a little bit of an aside. Joe Taylor is a brilliant physicist um, and, and has contributed so much to the amateur radio hobby. Uh, but his software and, and those programs are actually geared around uh, originally EME communications. So Earth, Moon, Earth or, or Moon Bounce communications over VHF to where your, your latency speed um, and the the uh, bandwidth of of the the transmission itself is very very limited, and so you know you you can't send but so many characters across that. It's just you just don't have the bandwidth for it. Uh, so he designed that digital protocol for that and around that, and each incarnation of it is still designed around those those parameters in one way or another. Uh, so you know. Anyway, that, that aside, the Zygu 6100 is the easiest to set up on digital operations. There are some great videos on doing it um, on brushbeater.store. I've got a couple of videos up that, that I think are uh, wonderfully illustrative and, and really, really well done to get you started on that. And um, the, all the cables and everything you need come with the package. Okay, they come with the package. And so, um, what a great field radio. Uh, but again, it puts out 10 watts. Uh, it is HF only. It has a great receiver on it, and the screen is big and bright on that sucker. So, you know, you, you, you have that SDR waterfall, software-defined radio waterfall. You can, you can literally see uh, where the signals are going to be and tune to them very quickly. And, and again, it, it's just like its bigger brother, the, the G90, in that it is very easy to use. Um, has a power supply built into it. Uh, it is powered by batteries um, that are internal to the radio, but you can also use it on uh, with with external batteries. It has a great antenna tuner unit that is built into the radio itself, and they accomplish all of this in a very small package uh, that that is capable of putting out up to ten watts. So when we use these in class uh, to get on HF, I mean, there really isn't a better radio on the market to demonstrate HF than that one. Um, I, I personally, I love it. And uh, that's the one that I have with me. That's the one that goes in my go bag. Um, and, you know, it, it's that package is very, very capable. But again, that wouldn't be the first one that I would buy. The G90 would be the first one I would buy because it's a little bit cheaper, um, significantly cheaper, and it is it, it has a higher out power output, so I can use this as a as a base station as well as something in the field, and I'm not really giving up that much. So the the uh, 6100, great radio, um, but it is very much geared towards field operations and you know if, if you're in the field awesome you, you know you, you you want you don't want to be encumbered by you know more things you got to carry that's a good way to, to get on it but as far as using it as a base station unit you may find it a little bit limited based on the power output now i know that there, there's um a amplifier for it out there a linear amplifier I have not had hands-on with this yet, 
And I don't know if I'll be offering them through the store. I'm sure that there's, there's a major customer demand based on your feedback for it. But I'm not going to offer a product that I haven't thoroughly vetted first. Uh, so that's kind of the long and short of that. And, um, you know, I haven't vetted it. I do plan on getting one, but uh, I know that that question will be on some of your minds out there. So that brings us to the last one on the list that is featured on the store, and that is the Q900. Uh, the Q900 is a very interesting animal. It would not be the first radio that I would carry to the field. Um, let me quantify that. So it is the non-ruggedized version of the TBR-119. And I have a couple of TBR-119s in my arsenal. We've used them in class. Really cool radios. And that is a mil-spec radio. Um, there is a data page on the U.S. Army's uh, ODIN uh, open source intelligence portal that, that has uh, equipment listings of, of foreign countries. And that one is listed as a uh, communications radio at the tactical level for China. So that is kind of something to think about in the back of your mind. Uh, the Q900 is a non-ruggedized commercial spec version of this. And it's about the same size as the ASU 817. So the ASU 817 was a classic radio. Uh, it was superseded by the 818. That's, I don't think, is any longer in production. It's been taken out of production this year. Um, good radio, though. Legacy piece of equipment. And this radio is about the same size. So, you know, that footprint's very small. The screen on it is very small. And um, even though it has a bunch of features in it, I think that the, the tiny little screen on, on the Q900 is a little cluttered for its own good. Now, that being said, it's, I don't think it's that difficult to use, and it, it is a good radio. Uh, I've been using one for several months now, and uh, it has a couple of features to it that I think are extremely useful. Not necessarily on HF. Okay, uh, this radio operates, and this is very unique for uh, radios that, that are on the market these days. This radio operates in VHF and UHF single sidebands as well. Now, this is really important, and this is something that you want to focus on because in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, correct? Like we're kind of all our north-south on that. Well... With that being said, single sideband in VHF and UHF is not very popular. Um, mainly due, well, there's a few reasons for that, but it, it, a lot of it has to do with the fact that you just don't have that many equipment options. And this brings us back to the old uh, Yaesu 817, 8818. Uh, the 857 family, that era of Yesu, they, they all had that capability built into them. The ICOM 706, the old school 706, ICOM 7000, they had that capability. It was what we called a shack in the box, all right? 
Well, for whatever reason, the big Japanese radio companies decided that they were going to abandon these features, that it was too expensive to implement, they didn't really need it. The majority of uh, VHF, UHF communications are done in, in FM, or frequency modulation, and so they abandoned AM and single sideband. But you will find people who are using it, and it is extremely useful. So if you're working in obscure modes and you're, you're you know, kind of working outside that envelope, if you have a, a technician class, amateur radio license, that allows you to do that. And what's really cool is, is that we think of FM communications as, uh, you know, like with your Baofeng or, or maybe, you know, something like the Baofeng Tech Mobile that's on brushbeater.store uh, putting out 25 watts. We think of everything in terms of FM communications only. Um, I think personally that single sideband on VHF and UHF is making a big comeback. And if you carry one doing a soda activation and you put up a, a small uh, VHF dipole, so you can build one, you know, two pieces of wire, 19 inches long, have a Cobra head there, run that coax to the radio, um, you know, and, and bam, you know, you're, you're in business. Uh, make sure it's horizontally polarized so it's parallel with the ground. Get on two meter, uh, which is VHF, uh, 144 megahertz, single sideband, and see who you can talk to. Uh, it is not unusual to get contacts of up to 200 miles, maybe further, uh, maybe further. I have another close friend uh, down in Louisiana. He knows who he is, uh, Believer Patriot. And, you know, we were talking about merits of single sideband in VHF and UHF, and he routinely gets 300, 400 miles sometimes at, at a single sideband contacts. So that's why I brought that radio to market, and that's what I think that its role really is. Uh, so that that's good notes to take away. Um, so breaking down those three, and uh, bringing them to your attention, kind of, you know, my thoughts behind, you know, what I'm bringing, the products I'm bringing to the market. And yeah, I use them all. Uh, I use them all. So again, kind of recapping, if, if you're just getting into HF and, you know, you, you are looking for that capability, maybe your first radio with the least amount of headache, man, that Zygu G90 is a hard act to beat. Uh, you're going to be really, really happy with it. If you're looking for something that's more oriented to uh, backpacking and soda and parks on the air, um, you know, and, and, and that's your game, hey, that, that 6100 is really going to dovetail well uh, with, with your plans. I think you're going to love it. I love mine, and I've been using it for, for a while now. And then finally, if you're looking to get into uh, single sideband communications, VHF, UHF, kind of maybe walking off the most commonly trodden path, hey, you know, that's where that Q900 is coming in. And it's really good to see companies out there that are that are embracing these capabilities, whereas some of the larger companies are, are backing away from them or backing away from the market. And uh, so I'm, I'm really glad to be sharing those with you and kind of, you know, offer up my thoughts on, on those products and why I'm out there. Anyway, with that said, folks, brushbeater.store, all of that that we've talked about can be found over there, including the professional references for the antennas. Um, 
you know, the, the SF Antenna Handbook is one of the best references that I've ever read on the topic of antennas specifically, and it's written in a language that anybody can understand. Literally, the, the, I think the second line in the preface of it is, this is not a manual written for engineers. It's written for the common man to read and understand. So pick up a copy of that over there. All your communications needs, all your antenna building needs are over there. All you got to do is add wire. With that said, folks, God bless. I hope all is well in your world. Continue to train, and I will talk to you again very, very soon. This is NC Scout, out.